So, David. So, Michelle. You know, we talk a lot about us spending a lot of time together and I think uh, three years is kind of a pinnacle. Are you, are you breaking up with me? No, I Who's thought we... really handsome guy I thought we needed to me? introduce someone else into the relationship. What? A menage toi. Huh? Oh, my God. Oh, performance pressure. Oh, I'm sweating. So, you know, there's a lot going on with leaders currently at the moment, so I thought we'd get someone in who actually can talk to leaders, um, particularly Narendra Modi and a few things going on with Justin Trudeau. Oh, whew, I thought that was going to be really hard. Well, let's have a chat to this fella. Well, it's not hard yet. Ooh. You're listening to I Spy, the world leader of Australian intelligence. I will not be leaving this position. I shall lead you until my death. No one shall... Oh, is that okay with you, Michelle? Uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of wish you would not. I'll just go then, shall okay, I? Okay, thank you. Hello and welcome to I Spied. My name is Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan and we do have a guest because, you know, three years we've been doing this podcast, three which is years. just insane. I can't even believe it. How did we get through a whole pandemic together? How did you get through three years with me? That's the I question don't everyone understand. Wants anyway, we've got someone here to kind of make us, you know, get through the, our three-year anniversary together. Also put us on the straight and narrow. Oh, straight and narrow. Let's be perfectly honest here. Yeah. We we occasionally need someone to come in. Well, and no, just, you do. You yeah, do. Well, yeah, that's because your job, I feel actually. like you just make shit up sometimes. Yeah, basically, <laughs> I do. But sometimes it's really good to have somebody who's got their finger on the pulse. The pulse? Of what's going on in the world. And the pulse right now is beating rather hard. So we've got Hamish McDonald. Thank you for joining us. He's got a podcast out called Take Me to Your Leader. And we thought, who better to get in than someone who knows about leaders? And can I say, uh, huge fan. Oh. Don't want to gush, but uh, oh was gosh. listening to it on the way in. Thank you very much for having me. I'm surprised you spent three years in this tiny room. Well, you know, the, the, we've had. We've, <laughs> oh my god, we are off to a great start because dad jokes are David's yeah. strength. Yeah, so I, um, I'm, I, I'm happy to bow to somebody who's got some new ones because I'm running low. Um, thank um, you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it's so good. So, look, take me to your leader. Why don't you tell us a bit about what kind of started this whole idea? Because I think, you know, when we think about podcasts, it's kind of a bit exhausted at the moment. So the subject matter is always like, how do we find that niche? So how did you find this niche? Uh, Look, you work in the news business. I work in the news business. The the world is changing very fast. We're talking about really rapid change. The sort of geopolitical sands are shifting pretty fast. Yeah. There's global conflict. There's division. There's disruption as well. And often we, I think, kind of gloss over the people that are steering all of this. Right? Yeah. So uh, very big events happen. You know, Vladimir Putin is a constant feature. He's been around yeah. for a long time. We don't often really step back from the news and think about, hang on, what is it that's motivating this person? What is it about their background, the way that they hold and exercise power that's making them do some of the things that maybe on the face of it to us look Pretty crazy, like yeah. invading a, a neighbouring country. Sorry, special military operation <laughs> in a neighbouring country. Well, I mean, and it depends clear on, on the terms. It depends yeah, on no. which country's news media you listen to. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Clearly, a big fan of Russia today. Over oh there. no, yeah. I just I just like to call a spade a shovel and let it go on. <laughs> yeah. So I think for me, what's often really useful when I'm thinking about interviews and covering stories mm. is just to read a little bit more broadly than just the headlines that we're getting. And I often like to think about the trajectory that an individual leader has been on. There's an argument that maybe individual leaders can't actually influence that much. But I think in today's world, 
that's yeah. hard, that's an argument that's hard to sustain. It's like, a very difficult one to sustain, particularly when you look at some of the leaders that we're dealing with. Well, even days. Trump. I mean, Trump kind of sparked this whole idea that, you know, all of a sudden the leaders and how they think and how they speak kind of does affect the, the politics of that nation. And I think... What would you say was kind of the defining moment that kind of changed that trajectory for how leaders are perceived? I mean, kind of Trumpian era, would you say? Like before that, that wasn't really a thing. I think there's a lot that led up to Trump. He's Mm. not the first populist leader. He's not the first um, nationalist populist leader in the world. I think what's been fascinating, actually, as we've put this series together is when you actually look at other leaders over time, a lot of them have kind of been pointing the world in this direction. So, you know, there's Viktor Orban in Hungary, some of the people that we spoke to about Erdogan, the president of Turkey, who's been around now for for decades. You know, there's some argument that he pioneered a lot of the stuff that that Mm. Trump has been pursuing in different ways. There's a lot of huge differences between someone like Erdogan and Trump. But even if you look at America, you know, there's some theories that actually... Trump isn't this sort of aberration that just came out of nowhere that actually ever since mm. Reagan, you had presidents promising some form of disruption of, yeah. of the system that existed. Even if you just look back to Obama, he was a bit of a come from nowhere president. Right? Oh, definitely. He offered this idea of disruption. And so obviously ideologically they're different, uh, but in a sense they're offering the same thing in terms of disrupting disrupting the system that there was. Even you could argue that Bush Jr., uh, George W. Bush, offered a form of disruption in the way that he wanted to sort but of But he intervene. wasn't very bright. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, his... his um, <laughs> he loves reading books to school children upside down. But he had this idea, right, that you could bring democracy, you could impose democracy yes. on other parts of the world. And that idea was very disruptive. And, you know, we, we all live with the consequences of invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. We could argue until we're blue in the face about whether that worked or not. Mm. But the reality is that he did, you know, and along with the other neocons that were in power at the time, that he'd bring that idea to the world in a in a in a violent way. Yeah, and we talk the... we talk a lot. Sorry, we talk a lot about Clinton as well. Like to yep. kind of with his foreign policy, and he kind of put a lot on the different parts of the world. And you know, then there was that blowback. We've got like September 11th happened because of some of America's foreign policies. So yes, I get that. But I think more so with Trumpian, it became more of a Western media phenomenon, whereas th- before we hadn't really heard about it. One of the things, and you brought up Erdogan and Orban who are two really interesting characters in the world leadership sort of sphere. But what's interesting about that, and it's something, I think it was something Saddam Hussein said back in the day. Yeah, that's great. You're the president maybe for eight years. I'm here for life, right? And that really Mm. is one of the things when you're dealing with these populist authoritarian leaders, they're in the job, they're not leaving. And it's a succession of presidents from the US that have to counter that experience. Basically, that intransigence of that leadership, it's stuck there, right? And you've got to find a way around it. And now Putin's in trouble. Xi's on the rise. Modi's another interesting character. But all of these leaders that have basically entrenched themselves, and you look at someone like Trump, Trump wants to be one of the, the entrenched club. He wants to be there for life. I think that's the point that's sort of creating itself with that authoritarian leadership. Mm. There was a really interesting op-ed written actually a few days ago by William Hague, who was the British Foreign Mm. Secretary for a while. He was previously the leader of the, the Tory party. He never won government as prime minister, but really thoughtful guy. And he has sort of made the argument that actually Western democracies can't ignore the rise of populism in Mm. other countries and they can't wish it away. 
that actually there needs to be a far more robust defence of the value systems that Western democracies stand for, mm-hmm. and that not to necessarily mimic the Trump approach, but that you, if you want to uphold that system, you need to actually do more than argue against the alternative. You need to increase your military spending. You need to invest more in the alliances. You need to make sure that uh, if Trump gets elected, there's no way that the West backs out of supporting Ukraine, which is a genuine yeah. fear mm. amongst those that support Zelensky and what, what the Ukrainians are doing in terms of standing up to Russia. Doing this series, you've covered a few leaders now. Who was the most interesting and who surprised you? Most interesting. Well, that is tough. I mean, uh, look. Because they would have all been interesting in different ways, for sure. Uh, And sometimes it's the ones that you don't expect to be super fascinating that turn out to be amazing. We've actually just recorded an episode on the Thai king of all people. The crop top Uh, wearing Thai king. Yes, correct. Yes, Google (laughs) crop top. I will never be allowed to go back to Thailand now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so in Thailand there are these laws called Les Majestés laws and they Mm. protect the monarch, the the institution uh, of the royal family. And so that protects the monarch from some degree of criticism. But over time, particularly with the advent of social media, that's changed somewhat. Mm. A lot of the big protests that have happened in Thailand in recent years have seen young people taking to the streets wearing crop tops because they've seen images of their king living not in Thailand but in the Bavarian Alps, uh, getting around in a crop top (laughs) uh, with a harem of of younger women. I mean, it is a genuinely fascinating story and it is about the interaction of democracy in Thailand with the royal family – with the military, you probably, you know, you don't have to look too closely to, at Thai politics to know that there's been a succession of coups over mm. recent decades. Mm-hmm. And at the centre of that is always about where power lies, whether it is the military, the military backing uh, the monarchy or whether it is genuinely democratic forces. So that was fascinating. But I think a, a real figure of our time and kind of speaks to the disruption in today's world is Yevgeny Prigozhin, the, the leader of the uh, Wagner Group. We love Prigozhin. We, we did, but now there's not a lot to love left. <laughs> I just like, because we talked we talk about Prigozhin and, of course, Putin and stuff quite a bit, and we were like laughing at how Prigozhin was staying in a hotel on the ground floor because he didn't want to fall out of any windows. Yeah. Instead, he fell out of the sky. Yeah, they just um, shot him down. <laughs> but Ouch. like the Prigozhin-Putin stuff, that's kind of like this on-again, off-again romance. What was interesting about the Prigozhin? stuff that you found? Look, the thing that today I think is most interesting about it is that the Wagner Group is not gone. Mm. It still exists as a force. I think it remains to be seen the degree to which it's operating separate from the Russian state. Regardless of what the answer to that is, Russia has an incredibly powerful tool Mm. that's a military tool that's acting in all sorts of different parts of the world, whether it's the coup belt in Africa. If you take a snapshot of the, the African continent right now, There's a belt of countries from east to west across the centre of Africa that have fallen to military juntas in recent years, right? Uh, And so there's Burkina Faso and Niger all the way to Sudan in the east. They've all experienced coups. And the Wagner Group is in all of them, almost without exception, in some way supporting the the military leadership of those countries. Mm. Now, that's that's incredible. Mm. In recent days, CNN did an investigation and revealed that there was an attack on some convoys of vehicles in Sudan uh, that were Wagner Group convoys or vehicles, it later turned out, and that that attack was likely carried out by Ukrainian operation (laughs) in Sudan. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're going to need to learn a lot more about exactly what was going on there. Mm. But 
if that is true and Ukraine's military is somehow conducting operations against the Wagner Group in Sudan, then there's a lot more instability in Africa in relation to the Wagner Group than perhaps what we thought. Well, it suddenly makes it becomes the proxy battlefield. You don't need to actually get Wagner in Bakhmut. You can go down to Africa and hunt them out there. Mm. But I mean, the thing that's interesting for me with, when it comes to Prigozhin and like the fact that Shogu, who's the defence minister, who's basically turned around and said, right, no more Wagner Group operating in Russia or Ukraine. Also, Shogu sounds like a Pokemon. We yeah, love that. Yeah, the Pokemon. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I just collected him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> his powers are strangely quiet but good. <laughs> You play the Shogu card and it's like... What do you oh win? God. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but you do. That's the weird thing. Yeah, yeah, you don't yeah. Know Always how. win. Uh, that was an interesting point that Shogu, who seemed so unstable and so weak and yet managed to walk away from this. So there's obviously a relationship going on there between Putin and Shogu that dates way before Prigozhin. I think clearly what's been revealed is that Putin's grip on power maybe isn't what it once was, mm. that, that that it is possible to destabilise him. I think it's also worth observing that he can hit back pretty hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I think Evgeny Prigozhin learnt that in a fairly brutal way. But, you know, there's a really interesting, I suppose, timeline game playing out now, right? Because there is this question about the degree to which the United States will remain committed to Ukraine and supplying it with arms if Donald Trump is elected as president in the 2024 election. What do you think the chances are of that, though? Well, I mean, so, it's, it's ultimately a 50-50 choice. Yeah, true. Well, I mean, if he becomes the Republican candidate, uh, then it is down to Biden or Trump if Biden is the, the Democratic candidate, and it appears that'll be the case. Mm. If he doesn't die beforehand. But, I feel like you know, so maybe, so, maybe, so old. maybe it's more than a 50-50 chance if, yeah. if you take that into account. So I don't think you can discount Trump becoming president again. And what happens after that? Does America continue to supply the ammunition? Do they continue to supply the heavy weaponry, mm. the hardware? You know, at the moment, we're talking about the supply of F-16 fighter jets, which would give the Ukrainians aerial firepower, yeah. more attack capabilities, which is crucial in this idea of a, a counteroffensive to enable Ukraine to take back territory that it's lost, it's lost to yeah. Russia. So will the United States continue to do that? I think the other part of the puzzle is that the rest of the support that Ukraine's been receiving largely comes through a NATO prism. Mm. Mm. Who's the biggest player in NATO? Well, the it's the United States. So suddenly, if Trump is back in power, it may mean a lot less support for Ukraine. Uh, it may give Russia a lot more autonomy to to divide up Ukraine as it wants. I think the world could change very rapidly if he comes I back. think, look, this is just a personal opinion, but I think knowing Trump's vengefulness, for want of a better phrase, he's very much like Putin in that you slide him, you're in trouble. I think that there, you know, the chances of Ukraine keeping support within a Trump administration is probably slim because he's not happy. Like he was impeached because of what supposedly happened on a phone conversation to Zelensky. He's not going to be like really that welcoming. And interestingly enough, I think it was in one of it was in your episode about Zelensky where you said, I think it's the British defense minister was getting sick of Zelensky basically going, can I have some more bullets? Yeah. So this was at the last NATO summit, which was held, uh, I think, in Estonia. Yeah. Ben Wallace is the guy who was the British defense secretary. He didn't have fun at that conference because actually he was tipped to become 
the next NATO Secretary General. I think it became apparent around that time that that wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. So his sort of post-British politics career fell away underneath mm -hmm. him. But he made these comments towards the end of the summer that Zelensky is sort of treating Western allies as a bit of an Amazon shop and yeah. just kind of dialing yeah. them up and saying these are the weapons we want and, and that that ultimately is not how it works. I think it's really interesting as well. Zelensky was speaking at the UN General Assembly this week in New York, uh, basically making a pitch to reform the way the Security Council works so that Russia doesn't have veto power anymore. And actually, talking to people that were there, not that many people turned up to listen to his speech. So I think that's telling about the degree to which that kind of international support for Ukraine is, is holding up. I think he's more of a media darling than he is from a, from a political standpoint. I think people in the media, kind of like Jacinda Ardern, was always mm. hailed this like great leader from a media perspective and from someone who's outside of the country. But internally, it's um, it's kind of it kind of wanes a bit. And also, I would say that the the US and a lot of English people and to a certain degree Australians are kind of getting a bit sick of the Ukraine handout. Yeah, look, I'm sure none, none more so than the, the Ukrainians themselves probably sick of Oh, no, no, bit. no, look, but, yeah, absolutely. Like I fully support whatever we can do to, yeah. to help that out. But it's just it does get to people, I think, when everyone's like, oh, but what about the cost of living? What about the cost yeah. of petrol? What about the – you know what I mean? Mm. And it's – it's I mean, the, the war in Ukraine has had a huge impact on all of our lives. What Every happens? time you talk to a politician about inflation <laughs> or prices. interest rates, they yeah. talk about the Ukraine. And, 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 it, and it doesn't help the cause, right? Because then all of a sudden you've got a population who believes it's Ukraine's fault. Well, <laughs> it, it becomes issue fatigue. And I, yeah. th that's, that's pretty much across the board when Ukraine first – when the special military operation, your special occurred. military operation, when that first happened, right? It, it was it was war to wall, twenty four yeah. hour type coverage, and then of course it was, it's the same with any major event on the planet. We have this moment of intense concentration, and then we start to drift. And I think we're at that point. What what are we? Two years down. Two uh, years. The conflict approaching, yeah. yeah. Yeah, approaching two years. So February next year is yep. two years. So look, we're 18 months down. This was meant to be over in three days. It obviously isn't. And it's not going to end anytime soon. And because of that, we get tired. We get weary of it. And we look for something else to look at. And look, as you said, Zelensky is most definitely a media darling. He's a trained media darling. The guy built a career as a media darling. Of course. All right. And then to wind up in that position. And look, when he was elected, even I was sitting there, I thought Zelensky must be in his hotel room going, I, I won? What? <laughs> really? But he is also that kind of leader that went and put it down to good acting. Mm. He's the sort of man that has gone, right, I'm here now. This is the issue. I have to deal with it. Let's deal with it. And he's played it brilliantly. Oh, he did. He's like, in terms of leading, he was exceptional. Yeah. He could have easily just scarpered. So I think to your point about whether he was performing domestically as a politician, certainly pre-war, there's real questions about mm. whether he was actually rising to the yeah. to the role. And, he, you know, it did take many people by surprise that he won because he, <laughs> he was an actor and comedian. He played mm. the role of president in a drama series and suddenly won election in this landslide series. I think what really kind of stood out to me when we made our episode about him is talking to the Ukrainian politicians, but also his friends, how kind of pivotal that what moment was mm. in the days after the war began. Yeah. Because as you pointed out, there was an expectation that the whole thing would be over in three days. Yeah. Famously, Joe Biden and the US administration was offering him lift out of there. Yep. And then he did this thing that no one quite expected. There was a bunker ready for him in Kiev. There was a bunker outside of Kiev. There was literally, you know, machinery in place ready to get him and his family out of there. And instead of any of that, 
he just walked out onto the streets in central Kiev and started filming a selfie video and saying to the population and to the world, I'm here, mm. I'm not going anywhere, we're going to stand and fight Slava Ukraina, which is glory yeah. to Ukraine. And that, I think it does take a bit of time to kind of consider the significance of that. Like yes. Obviously in the moment it was powerful, but a year and a half into this conflict, you can see how easily this could have gone in a different direction. 100%. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that also Putin was counting on him, you know, <laughs> bunkering down and like not leading the country um, to a war. But when we when we look at the leaders, are there any kind of similarities between them? Like, there's this um, really good book called The Psychopath Test. I don't know if you've read it. <laughs> I've not read the. Oh psychopath my god! Test. So this is like the, psych- so the psych oh. the psychopath test is an actual test. Okay. So um, this book is based on that, and it says a lot of leaders would probably find out that they're psychopaths because they have like a lot of those characteristics. Are there similarities between that you found between a lot of these leaders? One of our wonderful producers on this series at one point said, maybe we shouldn't call this series Take Me to Your Leader. We should just call it Daddy Issues. (laughs) (laughs) Like Elon Musk would be in there. (laughs) I I definitely think a lot of them have interesting or curious relationships Mm. with their, their parents and certainly it's really easy to see the the through lines in terms of the way they have come to leadership or or use their leadership and the connection with their parents. So, you know, obviously Xi Jinping's father was a member of the Communist Party. Yeah, was one of the sort of original, he was on the long march with Mao and stuff like that, wasn't Uh, he? Well, he was essentially turf from from the Communist Party or from the leadership ranks because of the Cultural Revolution. That meant this kind of sudden and enormous disruption to his life, Xi Jinping. So as a young man, he goes from being you know, part of the elite, if you like, Mm. uh, to growing up in a cave in rural China and really being kind of forced to internally confront whether he believes in this idea of of communism. We know Mm. the rest of the story, but it's so closely related to what happened to his father and I think his whole life is defined by that. I think Bong Bong Marcos, who we've done an episode on, now, he's the son of, of Imelda Marcus, right? Exactly. Ferdinand. Yeah. yeah, Ferdinand yeah. was the father. Yeah. He was the president, sort of Imelda turned. was the of shoe course, collector. Course, yeah, I mean, of course, my, I go straight to Imelda because I'm like, shoes. There were so shoes. many shoes. But, but you do so <laughs> rightly because this family's name became synonymous with corruption yeah. and yeah. profligacy. They, yeah. they fled the country to Hawaii with literally billions of dollars that was not theirs. Of it was, course. There was never even a final calculation of how much money they stole, mm. as well as the shoes, as well as the gold, as well as all the riches. And yet this guy has been able to turn the family's name around yeah. dramatically. Which is insane. That would never happen here. Look, I mean, <laughs> well, look, here's the interesting point. Sukarno, who was the original sort of president of Indonesia, Indonesia when it finally got independence. And then it, Suharto took over mm. in 65, I think it was. And we're doing an episode about the whole Jakarta thing. But then, so Sukarno became a name synonymous with communism, left-wing politics in Indonesia, bad, 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 bad. Yet his daughter, Megawati Sukarno Putri, became a president. At one point, she took leadership of the country. Mm. Now, that name, you can redeem a name. I do believe that's like, you know, hell, we had two Bushes. And we nearly had two Clintons, right? So there is that thing. Name recognition does stand for a lot. 
But just on presidents, there's a great. But I quote. think the second Bush ruined it. For the yeah. First Bush ruined it for every other Bush. I feel like I feel like the first Bush wasn't as bad as the second Bush. Anyway, that's just well. Me. Remember, Jeb Bush had a go as well. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, please yeah. clap. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. I feel like there's a good good analogy here between something in the hand, something in the bush, like <laughs> two in the hand, one in the bush. I don't know. And enough. Okay, right now, uh, just a quote from one of my favourite people and political analysts, uh, Douglas Adams, who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I love Douglas. To summarise, it's a well-known fact that. Those people who must want to rule people are ipso facto those least suited to do it. To summarise the summary, anyone capable of getting themselves made president should no, on no account be a, a allowed to do the job. <laughs> it's so true, though. It is. I mean, there is a certain narcissism and ego Psychopath. that has Psychopaths. to come into They're play. They're all the psychopaths. Yeah, so w- something that we've started to kind of think about and explore in this in this season is whether there is a kind of reaction to the populists and the big charismatic leaders. Because yeah. we can all, you know, when we say that, we think of Trump, we think of Putin, Xi, maybe Erdogan, maybe even kind of an Obama from, from oh, definitely. years ago. I, I think you would have to say that Obama was, in, or in a sense, a populist leader. Yeah, charismatic, the, offered yeah. populist solutions to yeah. things, if not a populist in the same sense that, that Trump is. Yes. But I think a question we've started to ask is whether the reaction to that is people like Rishi Sunak or Joe yep. Biden, mm. who are not exciting. I mean, if you look at Biden, you know, it's it's not an exciting proposition to But he gets sit down stuff and, done. Yeah, so, so part of what we kind of explored in the episode about him is, okay, he's old, he stumbles, there's a lot about him that does not look impressive, but is he actually in these kind of complicated, disrupted times where there's enormous division in the United mm. States is it actually useful to have someone there that knows how the system works yep. and can kind of do the compromise and can kind of muddle through it all in a way that perhaps doesn't look exciting but actually kind of gets the system but it's, to work? But it's that old thing of you don't want to know how a sausage is made, right? And I think that's the thing. He's been in the sausage factory for 50 years. It was yeah. 74. He was I don't elected, know the I think, year the off the top of my head, but it was right. a long time ago. It was a long time ago. And I think it probably was around the time of Watergate so he would have gone he would have been sitting in the senate going through all of that mm. right that incredible disruption of that moment then he would be, he was there for ford for carter then reagan then clinton like he's been and then the incredible disruption of the of 9/11 and the gulf war he's been sitting there and yeah. he's watched it mm. all happen he's had a front row seat and to be perfectly honest at this point in time, if America really wants a good leader, they want a leader who knows what has been going on in its bicameral system and how to oh. utilise that to get things done. I'm just not sure he today presents as competent yes. enough for people Agreed. to, to mm. be convinced of that. Now, I could be wrong. I'm just making an observation about the way mm. he appears now when making speeches yeah. and appears on stage. I think American politics we can all accept is is very visually based, people oh, yeah. just kind of watching television and seeing how it unfolds. There isn't actually a huge age difference between Trump and Biden, but Trump kind of does appear more vital. Yeah, because he's angry. That anger yeah. kind of kind of comes through. But, like, there there is a certain level of narcissism for Biden to kind of go, well, no, fuck it, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Because... At, at some point, everyone's like saying, no, but like you aren't presenting well, like you are making mistakes. This isn't coming across well. Well, there's also power in incumbents. Yeah. Right? It's, oh, yeah. it's easier to win. You have an advantage if you are the incumbent. So so there's that piece of it as well. I mean, I, I would imagine that the Biden camp is making a calculation that 
at the end of the first Trump presidency, people kind of voted for a break from that. People were, mm -hmm. there was an exhaustion with that domestically in America because there just was so much noise and every day, you know, you can remember you'd wake up and it'd be like, oh, what's he said on Twitter? What's Trump done now? And I suspect they would be making a calculation quite apart from whether there are better Democratic candidates than Biden, that given all the noise that is now building around Trump, that in 12 months time, it's actually over 12 months time until yeah. the election takes place, that there will again be a degree of exhaustion with Trump. I think that's kind of their best bet tactically. I do think that's one of the problems Trump has is he came in, he rode in on a, on a very noisy wave and unfortunately he never got off the wave and got on with the job. And I think because of that, as you said, there is probably going to be a level of exhaustion plus the fact that he's probably going to be in court sometime next year. I th and um, that's not going to look good. I think the complicating factor, though, is that, you know, the question is often put, who's going to vote for Donald Trump now that didn't vote for him before? And I think that's a reasonable question. Yes, I don't. I, that's why I don't think he'll get in. But, but equally... You know, it's not a compulsory voting system. No. Oh, yeah. So you also need to, to ask the question, will the same amount of people that voted for Biden last time vote for him again? It's a quite, yeah, That's the, the problem they have is you've got to motivate your base. You've got to, mo well, not motivate your base. Your base is locked in. You've got to motivate the swinging vote to come out and actually pick. Yeah. Mm. Well, you have to motivate both. I mean, if you can't get the conservative out vote to, to come out and vote for Trump, yep. you're in difficulty. Same with Biden. If he can't get the progressive vote out, that's difficult for him. But you're right. It does lie in the center ground, yeah. even though America's system is a bit more kind of... They're a bit more polarized. Yeah. So is it someone you haven't covered or that you missed that you kind of think, gee, I wish we'd kind of cover that person? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Is <laughs> is what, who, would be the, who would be the top person that you haven't covered yet that you're like, I really want to dive deep into that person? Oh, look, we actually sort of, we took listener suggestions at the end of season one and we're just Lovely. kind of over... Owls tell us to shut up, so... <laughs> no, they tell you to shut up. Okay. <laughs> they think David's funny, I don't They tell me it. I'm not doing my homework correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun people. <laughs> and if you'd like to tell us to shut up or do our homework, you can always tell us to do that at I Spied Podcast on Twitter. At I Spied Podcast, yes. So we got loads of historical suggestions. I think people like uh, Angela Merkel would be really interesting. Mm. Yes. I think Reagan would be interesting. I'd probably like to do a couple of old Australian leaders. I think even kind of in recent history, like we were about to do an episode on Jacinda Ardern when she promptly decided she that she pen, was yeah. leaving. I don't think she's as geopolitically significant as a lot of these other ones, but I think she's kind of an interesting case study in, yeah. in different kinds of leadership. But, yeah, I mean, there, there is a lot. And yeah. we've only done two seasons of eight episodes each and there's – you know, that's barely scratching the surface. I mean, you haven't even touched South Amer South America yet. So Lula da Silva is super interesting, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, but there's lots of kind of crazy examples there as well. So, But there's also, I mean, Erdogan would be fascinating to find out about. And look, and it's one thing that I, I mentioned to Michelle when we were talking about talking to you is the Iranian leaders. The problem being is it's such a, it's a very opaque system. You can't really tell who's leading where and what. Well, it is murky, right? Because there's a president that's democratically elected, yep. but the supreme leader is an Ayatollah. <laughs> yeah. And the, the sort of nexus between those two is always a little bit movable depending on who the president is at any given time and what level in, of interest the Ayatollah has in the matters that well, are before Interesting them. enough, the current Ayatollah, who's the supreme leader and the president, I think... Basically, the Ayatollah is basically working the president up with Racy. Right. They're, they're working Racy up to become the next Ayatollah. So it becomes that sort of movable feast with Iran, which is fascinating. It's like but chess. Then, like Ahmadinejad, he's 
currently on I'm a dinner sun. jacket. I'm a dinner I can't help it every yes. time I, I hear it. I know. Sorry. I wrote that in a parliamentary brief. <laughs> From ASIO to Parliament, no Ahmadinejad required. Uh, <laughs> and no one got it. Anyway, that's the problem of comedy and ASIO. They do get it sometimes, but sometimes they don't. Also, but, you're not funny. But so, anyway. Ow. So Ahmadinejad uh, is currently under sanction because yep. of the US prisoner swap. Biden has essentially sanctioned the... Iranian intelligence service and Ahmadinejad for those apparent kidnappings, as they called them. But again, this is the fascinating thing. There are so many leaders out there that have got these amazing histories that we want to learn about. So Bashar al-Assad is one that we kind of looked Mm. pretty closely. He's had an incredible trajectory in recent years. I mean, he was kind of persona non grata in the Middle East just a few years ago, conducting sort of horrific bombing campaigns on his own People, mm. chlorine gas, the full works. Yeah, yeah, I mean, as bad as his father, who had been the president, had yeah. done similar things, and suddenly Bashar al-Assad is is sort of completely on the out. I think in in probably Western democracies, he's still uh, out of favour. Yeah, but he certainly started to find his ba- way back into uh, to the leadership circles in the Middle East. He is being given meetings with other leaders in the Middle East. He is turning up at the at the. Uh, the forums of, of uh, alliances in the region, and I suppose because the world has moved on a bit and because Islamic State had established a foothold in Syria and therefore back on that, yep. uh, you know, he's kind of experienced a, somewhat of a rehabilitation inside his own country. But that goes back to that point of if you are that kind of authoritarian populist leader or just authoritarian in Bashar's case, you can basically wait out the storm. Right. Whereas an American president, you've got eight years and there's a great scene of four years and hopefully eight. There's a great scene in um, The West Wing where basically Josh Lyman explains how. Every scene in The West Wing's great. Great. But he basically (laughs) explains how you've got six months after the election and after that first six months you're in office, you're into midterms. So you've got to negotiate around that. Once the midterms are done, you've got another three months and then you're into the It's the politics of politics. It's the politics of politics and how everything you try to get done is restrained by time, whereas mm. with the more, you know, those the leaders who put themselves in for life, they're literally there for life. You, you kind of see how dangerous a game that is for leaders in democracies, mm. though. Like, mm. uh, you're, you know, we've seen governments here, whether it's the Abbott government or the current Albanese government, they got two things pretty quickly once they got into office. You know, if you remember back to that austerity budget that yeah. Joe Hockey delivered, and then suddenly they get crucified. But it makes me think of the Liz Truss experiment in the UK, right? That so, was horrific. So she comes in you know, a year and a half, two years out from a a national election in the UK and clearly is of that mindset. I've got to use this time well. I've got to do it. Mm. But then totally blows up the economy and lasts 45 days. Oh, yeah, that was, I mean, God. What was it? Her her term as prime minister was shorter than the life, the shelf life of a cabbage. Yes, that's right. It was the cabbage gate. Yeah, cabbage gate. (laughs) I know you've you've got somewhere to go and I don't want to keep you too long, but Narendra Modi, we want to touch on that, particularly with what's going on with Canada at the moment and Justin Trudeau. You know, he kind of came to Australia, had this rock star welcome. Oh, yeah. I mean, even now, Albo's getting pushed back for kind of calling him the boss and then telling everyone to chill out about it. So we've got Modi and people are in two minds. They either really, really love him or they're like, no, he's the worst. 
So I think something that's really interesting actually on that score is that when Modi visited Australia just a few months ago, he actually said something publicly about his view of how Australia should handle the Sikh community mm. here. Right. And I don't think many people took no. notice of it at this at the time, but I think those comments now are getting a bit a kind more, of, well, yep. I think people are going back and looking over them and yep. also looking at the Australian government's response to them at the time, which was fairly muted. I think people didn't quite get the degree to which this was a serious matter. I've been kind of amazed actually on radio in the last few days as we've covered this story out of Canada, how many Australian Sikhs have been texting in, talking about their own experiences, even in Canberra at the Sikh temple, sort of making allegations about the involvement of the, the Indian embassy. I mean, unquestionably, Modi is a bit of a rock star politician. He's definitely a populist. Mm. He's in that mold. Uh, He's really cultivated the diaspora relationships cleverly. So, yes, you mentioned he had a rock star welcome here, but he's kind of done that ever since he's been leader Mm. in India. He's gone overseas. He's had local Indian diaspora set up these big kind of rock star events. One of the people that- Kudos Arena. That's a big arena. Exactly. So one of the people that we met on our episode of it was a couple, American uh, Indian origin couple who I think live in Chicago, but set up a reception for him at Madison Square Gardens. Yes. And it was packed out. Uh, And he had this kind of incredible rock star reception. So he's built a brand around that. But unquestionably, he has a degree of Hindu nationalism about him. Mm. And if you are anyone or anything, whether you're a Sikh independence fighter or or someone that wants Sikh independence or or you're a Muslim from Kashmir, you're going to have a very different perspective. Because it's Khalistan they're trying to set up in the Punjab. Is that right? So Khalistan is what they call this notion. And there has been... I think what makes this a little more complicated, right, is that some of these um, Sikh communities in foreign countries have tried to hold referendums where they are on whether there should be an independent state. So they make no secret of being some kind of separatist movement. Mm. I guess what, you know, clearly is shocking is that the Indian government would be seeing it as such a threat and, you know, clearly carrying out an extrajudicial Killing yeah. in in another country, if that is true, and, it's and the most allegedly, polite, allegedly, the most polite country in the yeah, world. Yeah, I was going to say. I, I wonder if part of him thought, well, Justin Trudeau won't do anything. <laughs> He's just, too nice. He'll just be like, hey. Well, well also, yeah. Canada does have a huge Sikh population. Yes, right? yes, so massive. I think that's part of it. And clearly, clearly, there's some history to this. There's been some tension between India and Canada that probably no one other than Indian or Canada, Canada took any notice of uh, before this all happened. But I do think what it will be interesting to see whether Trudeau is forced to actually produce some of the evidence. It's such an extraordinary allegation for for the Prime Minister of a country to make against another country. 100%. That also is, I mean, he he's basically said, look, we have intelligence evidence that says that you guys did it. Mm. Right. The thing is, as soon as you do that, A, intelligence services don't particularly like to have their evidence exposed. It's not a good idea because that then exposes source and standard operational procedures and whatnot. The interesting thing about this is he basically made that claim. He did it at the G20, I think was the first time, Mm. and they've since carried on their little spat at well, because uh, he wanted he wanted an extended meeting on the sidelines, right? He yeah. wanted to kind of like I think he wanted to try and keep it behind closed doors, but mm. I guess he felt like he had no other course of action. It's interesting though for Justin Trudeau because he he never struck me as that kind of leader. 
He always kind of struck me as someone who wouldn't come out and say on the world stage, hey, this has happened. Yeah. Mm. But then, you know, his leadership by Canadian terms is mm. getting a bit old. I think seven yes. years he's been in charge. His poll numbers aren't great. No. Not to suggest that this is entirely political. No, but it did feel like that to me as well. But, you know, I'm sure he would look at other examples of where countries have called out other countries yep. for activities based on our show. I mean, if you think about the Australian example and the finger pointing that's occurred towards China, uh, not just because of the trade things that have occurred, but because of the operations of Communist Party linked operations mm. inside Australia, the pressure on Chinese students or Chinese migrants living here and the impact that that's had on, on Chinese based businesses oh, totally. operating here and in China. You know, you can see the way politicians might see the benefit in in becoming vocal about it rather than just raising it through diplomatic channels. So we are in how many seasons? We're two seasons down. Two se well, oh. we're, we're sort of three episodes into season two mm -hmm. at the moment. Yeah, okay, another. cool. And you're, are you doing a season three? Like, we will find on? out once <laughs> once season two know. concludes. Are there enough leaders in the world yeah, yeah, yeah. to talk about? Well, I guess, is this subject matter proving popular? Yeah, I mean, the, the podcast's done really well, which is yeah. really gratifying. It's great to see good audience numbers. I yeah. mean, you know, coming from a foreign correspondent background, you sort of always assume that the work – I always assume the work I do is sort of the bit that never gets the ratings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's sort of always the kind of international news story that that is no not one, as no exciting to yeah. people as the uh, as the cat up a tree down, down the, the street. Or the Royal Easter Show or something like that, you know. <laughs> exactly. Well, he's a mechanic, yeah. but is he fixing your car? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay, current affair, calm down. Yeah. Uh, so I've always assumed, you know, it, yeah. it's challenging to find an audience. But look, obviously, you know, it, with the way that the media market has fractured and mm. uh, people are sort of looking for more niche content. Yeah, uh, it's great to see that there's been such an audience for this, and we've got a tie-up with I think the CBC in Canada as well. So it's great that the podcast is doing so well. And yeah, Narendra we'll Modi won't be listening to you if you're in Canada. <laughs> We have had to geo-block a couple of episodes, actually, which sort of speaks really? to oh, really? how sensitive, yeah, some of the... Uh, oh, I guess, right. For Thailand, would you have to... It hasn't gone out yet, but it, but it may be something that, yeah. that um, would be considered. But, yeah, when we did the Saudi episode, some of the, some uh, of the participants... MSB, yeah, yeah so uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who's the crown prince of Saudi yeah. Arabia, we did an episode on him. We had someone appear on the podcast... Uh, that was kind of linked with the the upper echelons of of the Saudi elite, knew them, worked with them, basically fell foul of them and ended up in Australia, who mm. participated in this and told us some extraordinary stories about what it's like to to be on the wrong side of MBS. Mm. But, yeah, for sort of safety reasons, we, we had to take those steps. Well, That's I'm, interesting. I'm excited about the Thai episode because I, I was in Thailand uh, during the reign of King Bolopong. Were you wearing a crop top? No, 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 I was wearing a sarong. Okay. Um, it was the golden jubilee for King Bomberpon, and we were down at the palace on the day, and it was a million people, yeah. which was extraordinary. But I was doing a stand-up gig at the Australian Embassy and just turned around to one of the guys there and went, oh, i got this great joke about King Bomberpon, and it was like six people descended and went, just shut up, shut up, no. <laughs> no jokes, no jokes, up. no jokes. But, yeah, but the, his son, the current king, we would go out every day and fly over Bangkok in a jet fighter. He just take a jet fighter and go <laughs> around the city for a couple of hours. Quite possibly with his pet dog. Foo I was going to say I was going to bring the dog up. The dog is great. Tell us a dog. Dog's got story. its own little helmet, yeah. flight jacket. Fufu was made an air chief vice marshal. <laughs> when it died, was given a state funeral. This is, I know you're laughing. This is not actually. I, know. It's, I mean, it's very Caligula, and you know, mm. making his horse a senator and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> it's not. It's not 
beyond the realms of possibility. It happens in history all the time. Yeah. yeah. There is one, there's actually only one journalist in the world that's ever interviewed King Vajulongkorn, the new king. Vajulongkorn, that's it. And uh, he happens to have ended up in Australia. So he's on the podcast. He has an incredible story, firstly, about how he got the interview. He kind of took him by surprise yeah. and then what happened afterwards. So it's definitely worth... Uh, he was out walking his dog. <laughs> the king walked up and went, that dog looks just like mine. Let's talk. It's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for making terrific. the effort. Highly recommend Take Me to Your Leader. Oh, I so totally great. would. Yes. I'm, um, I'm currently hanging out to listen to the next step. Thank yes. you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Amish. I mean, what a delight. That man knows everything. What an amazing – look, I really like being able to speak to somebody who knows more than me. Yeah, which is most people, I would think. But I uh, – Generally, a bus ride for me will give me that experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. But anyway. <laughs> but look, I think not only does he speak – I could just listen to him speak all day. But he, he gen- genuinely knows his stuff. And so I think anyone who wants to know a little bit more about world leaders – and let's be honest, this is a time in history where we want to know more about who is driving the world. We need to know. So take me to your leader. Take me to your leader. With Hamish. Listen to it. Yeah. It'll fix you up. Yeah, I think. Well, anything – that isn't this, we'll fix you. Hey, we provide a service to our listeners. I don't know what that service is, though. Not a particularly good one, but they enjoy it. Yep. Yep.